Well, if you have a Bible, would you turn back to the second reading that we read from Matthew chapter 6, and we read verses 1 to 18. Now, what can this passage have to say to us? We don't do these things which the Lord Jesus Christ describes, do we? We don't, uh, if we give money, draw attention to it, blow a trumpet, do it in a very public way. And when we pray, we don't deliberately seek out a street corner to pray on so that we can be seen publicly. And if we were fasting, we would not in some way disfigure our appearance so that people looked on us and said, oh, that person's fasting. What a holy person he is or she is. We don't do any of those things, but we mustn't think, actually, that those are the things mainly that this passage is about. This passage uses those things as examples, but it is actually about something far more probably beneath the surface than that, and something unseen. The three things that this passage deals with are motives, behaviour, and consequences. I wonder how often we think about our lives in that way. If we try and take a sort of a whole sweep of everything, what are my motives? What am I aiming for when I do what I do? What about my behaviour? Do I behave in the way I do simply to be commended by other people to fit in with the crowd and be thought of as a good person? And then do we link our motives and our actions with consequences beyond the immediate consequences? Because that's what this passage is all about. Our motives, our actions, and our consequences. Now motives, for most of us, are far from straightforward things. Sometimes we surprise ourselves with what we do and wonder, where did that come from? Sometimes we, we really don't think that much about motives. But motives are the things, the first things that determine whether an action is a good action or a bad action. What actually motivates the action? You might say, well, as long as people do the right thing, the motives don't really matter. Well, I want to tell you a story about a man called Jim. I, I knew him. He's no longer alive, but I knew Jim. 
And I knew him quite well. I saw him uh, week after week at work. Because, in fact, he worked for me. And so I'm not going to say that Jim was a, a, an awful man or anything like that. He, he was a reliable man. And in many ways a good man. Jim was not a professing Christian, although I did first meet him at church. And Jim was married to Jill. And I was surprised, I, I sort of jumped to certain conclusions, I thought perhaps they'd been married for a time, perhaps neither of them were Christians when they got married, but Jill subsequently had become a Christian and Jim hadn't. That was my sort of kind of picture in my mind, but that doesn't, didn't turn out to be true. They met at church as well. Not the church that I went to at the time, but they did meet at a church. Jill was there on her own. Jim was there on his own. He was divorced more than once. She was... Uh, I'm not sure if she was divorced or widowed, but they were both single. And Jim was attracted to Jill and got to know, they got to know each other and this relationship uh, developed. But Jim knew this, that if he was going to marry Jill, which is what he wanted to do, he would have to become a Christian first. She wouldn't marry him otherwise. And so he seemed to be interested in the gospel, seemed to feel a sense of need, and he approached the pastor of the church and said he had become a Christian and he wanted to be baptised. And he was baptised. And things went on, they were married. And then Jim said to Jill, you know, I'm not a Christian and I never have been. Well, what are we going to say about that? Are we going to say, well, it doesn't matter. Jim was baptised, having professed faith in the New Testament way, accepted by the church as a candidate for baptism. His motives don't matter. His motives are actually the all-important thing. Because what he was doing was putting on a show. And the truth was different. And it's no wonder in our, that in this passage and throughout the Bible, there is a tremendous emphasis on motives. God homes in on our motives. Back in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, there's a record of a confrontation between Samuel, who was God's spokesman, and Saul, who was the first king of Israel. And we're told in the beginning of the chapter that God gave Saul an instruction, go and destroy the Amalekites because of the way that they treated the Israelites when they were coming out of Egypt. And they, they must be destroyed. And so 
Saul gathered uh, a force together from the tribes of Israel and he went and made war on the Amalekites. He almost did what God told him. But not quite. He did not destroy them completely. He spared their king. And he did not destroy all of their property, which he had been told to do. But the best of the animals and their livestock and so on were kept alive to be taken as plunder by the Israelites. And God told Samuel what had happened. And Samuel went looking for Saul. And when he found him, he, couldn't, he didn't know where he was at first, but he was told he's not here because he's in another place erecting a monument to himself. He was so pleased with himself. But then when he found him, Samuel confronted him and said, why haven't you done what God told you to do? And it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting conversation if you read it. Because Samuel is telling Saul he hasn't done what God told him. And Saul is presenting in exchange for his obedience, his motives. Ah, oh, yes, we, we didn't do that. No, we, we kept the best of the animals to sacrifice to God. I don't know if that brings to mind any incidents in your life. It brings to mind incidents in my life when I pretend that I've done something wrong because I had good motives. And God said to Saul through Samuel, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. And Samuel went on to tell Saul that he had lost his position. That God had taken the kingdom away from him, the kingship away, and had given it to somebody else. And that, that wasn't an easy message for Samuel to deliver. Not only because he was in danger himself, but because he loved Saul. Saul was his kind of progeny. He'd invested in Saul massively. And even God had to come to Samuel after a time and say to him, why are you still mourning for Saul? And he told him in the next chapter, chapter 16, 1 Samuel chapter 16, to go and anoint Saul's successor. And so Samuel did what he was told. He went to Bethlehem. He called for the family of Jesse to join them at a feast. 
And he arranged to meet the sons of Jesse because he knew that the next king was one of those sons. Now these were impressive guys. And the first one he saw, he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But God said to him, don't look at his height. Saul was very tall, head and shoulders above everyone in Israel. Don't look at his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not see as man sees. Men look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We're back to motives again, aren't we? And this is how it is throughout the Bible. That what matters is our motives. That our actions are not considered on their own. We've got, we've got a phrase, haven't we, now that, that's used since um, I think somebody who wrote in The Spectator invented it. Virtue signalling. Where people give an impression of having virtue in a certain area. But in fact, if you looked into their hearts, they have virtually no attachment to that value that they want to be so strongly associated with. That value that they're signalling their attachment to and their commitment to. So, what is God looking at now? God who sees. What is he seeing? Where is he looking? Is he saying... Oh, that's good. Look at Ian, he's at church. He's standing there preaching the sermon. Well, I'm really impressed. Because he isn't. He is looking on my heart. He is looking on your heart. That's where he looks. We look at the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. And he sees. Even when we behave in a way that is just designed to impress others and may in fact succeed in impressing others, if it is hypocritical and not the truth about us, God sees the heart. If we're here this evening just because we want to impress others, Not because we want to respond to God's saving grace. Proclaim our identity as Christians who gather for worship. Well, God knows that. God knows it. Even if nobody else in this building knows it. God knows it. Because that's where he's looking and what he's looking at. So we mustn't think our motives are not important. And we mustn't sort of just not be concerned about our motives. It's where battles are won or lost. It's a really, really important area.
What sort of actions do good motives lead to? What sort of actions do the wrong motives lead to? Well, this is where we're given these examples of giving, praying and fasting. What should we focus on? Well, what we should focus on is how we do these things. How we give, how we pray, and how we fast reveals why we give and pray and fast. Now, I'm not saying... If you can learn to give like this, you'll sort of earn points. And those points make prizes, or in this case the prize of forgiveness in heaven. I'm not saying that. These people are Jesus' disciples who came to him. These these are not the actions that make you disciples, but they are the actions that you will want to be uh, a part of your life of discipleship. And what is the first thing about these actions? That if we do them in the way that pleases God and from good motives, we will do them in secret, not only in public. These things will be a real part of our lives. We will make gifts that nobody knows that we make. We will pray prayers that nobody knows that we pray. And if we fast, we will do it in a way that doesn't draw attention to ourselves. So that when we do on an occasion like this, join together in prayer, say, that's not the only time we pray. We pray when nobody is looking, as well as when all of our friends are looking. And we do them in secret. We probably do them wishing we did them more and better. We won't be proud of them, the fact that we pray and so on. And the longest section in this passage deals specifically with prayer. And Jesus says there's a man's way to pray and there is God's way to pray. And The man's way to pray, or the human way to pray, is just to do it, to repeat it, to make prayers of great length, and to think, well now, God must hear me. But God's way to pray, we pray deliberately, and exclusively, and very definitely, to the one true God. Prayer in itself is not an action of any kind of merit, so that it doesn't matter who we pray to as long as we pray. That is not true. We must pray to the one true God. When you pray, say, Our Father who is in heaven. Not any other name, Not any other being, but the God of the Bible, 
And in our prayers, we should acknowledge our creator-creature relationship. Our Father. The person who is responsible for my being. The one who has given me life. And the first thing we should pray for is that he will be glorified. Hallowed be your name. Our prayer focuses on our needs. Although God already knows what they are, Jesus tells us that in this passage. We're not telling God anything he doesn't know. It acknowledges our daily dependence upon him. Give us this day, our daily bread. In other words, tomorrow I'm going to come back for more because I'm dependent upon you daily. And it requires us to be forgivers. Not carry hatred in our hearts or bear grudges towards other people. It's conscious of our weakness in spiritual battles. Lead us not into temptation. This is God's way to pray. But our giving, too. Jesus says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Obviously, there's a... He's speaking in this way to, to, to have an effect. We do know what our hands are doing. Sometimes we do things and other people know that we do it. But this is not why we should do it. And what about the consequences? These are the actions. This is what we do in God's way because of the motives that God has given us. But what about the consequences? Consequences are important and they go on beyond this life. Do we do the things we do to be seen by men? Three times the Lord Jesus warns us about that in this passage. He, he tells us, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. And when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites, with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. What do people receive? What are the consequences that people receive if they do things to make an impression on other people. Well, the consequences are that they will get their reward. 
Again, three times in this passage, Jesus says that people who do that have their reward. They are rewarded in full. So that one of the consequences of doing things to be seen by men is that it's rewarding. If that's the reward that you're looking for. But if that is the reward that you're looking for, look at the price that you're paying. When you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Now there seems to be a sort of mutual exclusion here. Either we do things in secret knowing that God sees what we do, and we expect to be rewarded for doing them. Or we do things publicly in order to be seen by people because we want the reward here and now. Now rewards are very exciting things. As we discover what things are rewarding, we actually respond in a physical way. And those who study these things talk about there being reward pathways in the brain. And over time we, we become sort of addicted to behaviour that's rewarding. Sometimes we don't even have to do it, we just have to think about it and it makes us feel better. But Jesus says that if we go for the rewards that are available here and now, the rewards that are available in the future will be denied us. So there are two principles here. That God so acts that all actions have consequences. And the second principle is that Jesus, who was dead, is now alive. One of the most famous scientists in his day who has ever lived is Lord Kelvin. And he was a discoverer of many things. And a solver of many problems. And he was once asked by journalists... What's the most important discovery you've ever made or you could ever make? And he said, I would ask Jesus Christ, did you rise from the dead? That's the most important discovery I could ever make. And Lord Kelvin wanted to know, wanted to be able to say with certainty that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. In fact, Lord Kelvin did believe that. And he, he presented it to this people as the most important discovery that can ever be made. 
because it means if he did rise from the dead that death is not the end and that's throughout this passage as well your father who sees in secret will reward you now how does God reward people is it right to expect to be rewarded for doing no more than what we should well it's actually part and parcel of saving faith we read in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 that without faith it is impossible to please God for he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So we come to God expecting it to make a difference not only to our present but expecting it to make a difference to our future as well. When Paul uh, wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4 and verse 8 he spoke about godliness and he says it has value for all things bodily exercise profits a little but godliness is profitable for all things having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come so God rewards those who do things for his glory in this life and in that which is to come. Eternal life is a relationship with God that begins in this life. And it brings benefits in this life. As well as benefits in the next. But we don't receive on this earth and in this life. We don't receive the fullness of rewards. In Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12, the Lord Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul tells us that whatever we do, we are to do it with all of our hearts because we are not serving ourselves but the Lord. And we do it knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done and there is no partiality. So when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he will bring rewards with him for all of those who trust him, all of those who know him, all of those who have lived for him will be rewarded. I know that salvation is a free gift. It's not something that we can earn. And we could say that these rewards are not something to which we have sort of established a right 
by the things that we have done, but God promises to give them to us. God speaks of rewards, not just in Matthew chapter 6, but in all of these other passages. And that's the reason I've referred to so many passages. Because I want, to, I want us to see that this is something that's throughout the New Testament. And it should be something that we are conscious of. When we do things for God, we should realise that God sees. Even if nobody else sees. God sees in secret. How does God know what rewards are appropriate? Well, he does know, because he sees in secret. And if somebody sees in secret, do you have any secrets? Can you have any secrets? If God sees in secret, can we actually have any secrets, really? Not from him. Although we might have secrets from one another. So, far from it being a wrong thing to serve Christ expecting to be rewarded, it's actually something the New Testament commends and something which it expects, expects us to do. We're not to expect, you see, if we, if we don't expect this, what we're really saying is this, that actually this life is the only place we can live our best life. It's only in this life that we can get any kind of fruits or results from what we do and we improve our life and that this life is all that actually matters. But if we have an eye on eternity, and if we think about the eternal rewards, and we allow ourselves to believe what God says, and we are motivated by those things, then we'll be proclaiming our agreement with what God's word teaches, that this life is not the best life. That the best life is in, to be lived in the life to come. And in fact, uh, in the verses that follow the passage that we read from Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us, don't lay up treasure on earth, but lay up treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, as you think about your life, as I think about my life, do we think about all of it? Do we think about our motivations, our behaviour, and the consequences? Because they're all linked. They flow one from another. And do we... Live the life in public that we live in private. Because we recognise that as far as God is concerned, there is no distinction between public and private because he sees everything. Even what we do in secret. And so do we live that life because 
we take our instructions from God's word, do we live the life that pleases him? Whether that's seen by people or whether it's not seen by people. But it is the life who ple- that pleases him and that he will reward. Your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Thank God for that truth. Believe it and live in a way that shows that you really do believe it. Not necessarily to others, but to yourself. That you really do believe it and that you are looking forward to the rewards that God gives and that Jesus will give you when he comes again, bringing his reward 